0: But during the pandemic, we've seen a huge 65% increase in calls and contacts logged by the National Domestic Abuse Helpline and an increase in police recorded offences. Welcome to the Matrix Pod. My name is Sam Knights. I'm a barrister at Matrix and adjunct professor at the University of Miami School of Law. I'm here today with Karen Monaghan, fellow Matrix barrister, visiting professor at UCL a specialist in equality law and author of what is widely and rightly regarded as the go-to book in this area, Monaghan on Equality Law. Karen's also held a number of judicial positions in the UK, including High Court Deputy Judge and has acted in numerous cases involving domestic violence against women, including the Supreme Court case of Michael and the Chief Constable of South Wales, which we're going to speak about a bit later. I'm also here with a colleague from the University of Miami, Professor Carrie Bettinger-Lopez, director and founder of the Human Rights Clinic there, commissioner of the Lancet Commission on Gender-Based Violence, and who served during the Obama administration as the White House advisor, On violence against women. Carrie, in practice, has acted for Jessica Lenehan, a victim of domestic violence in her case, which went to the US Supreme Court and then to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And we're here to talk about violence against women within the UK and the US. We're going to be looking a bit at prevalence and what's happened during the pandemic, gaps in law, policy and practice reform and the new Domestic Abuse Act in the UK, and the scope of the duty on police to protect victims of domestic violence. So I want to first of all talk a bit about prevalence and how accurate reported figures are, given that domestic violence is largely a hidden crime. It occurs primarily behind closed doors in the home. Um, For the UK, at least, the Crime Survey of England and Wales offers um, the best data uh, available. This shows that for the year to March 2020, an estimated 2.3 million adults between 16 and 74 experienced domestic abuse. And of these, 1.6 million were women. And in the same period, the police recorded over 750,000 domestic abuse-related crimes in England and Wales, which is an increase of 9% from the previous year. But referrals of suspects from the police to the Crown Prosecution Service, in fact, fell by almost 20% to just under 80,000, and the charging rate decreased. And overall, what we can see is that there's been a longer-term decline in reported cases compared to 15 years ago. But during the pandemic, we've seen a huge 65% increase in calls and contacts logged by the National Domestic Abuse Helpline and an increase in police recorded offences. So, Karen, I wanted to ask you, first of all, what, what do we make of these government figures? Are there issues with the way the data is collected? Do we really know the true levels of domestic violence against women and what's the reality on the ground and how have NGOs filled the gaps um, in the information? Well we
1: certainly know that there are more incidents of domestic violence and indeed violence against women more generally than are recorded and as you've indicated surveys very much demonstrate that. We can see what the recorded rates are and we know from surveys and data from NGOs and campaign organisations, that the prevalence is is much higher. Um, Why that is? That is why are uh, domestic violence incidents not recorded? That's unclear, but I think we can sensibly suppose that it's partly a reluctance um, to report because of a concern about how the police might respond, obviously a concern about the perpetrator's response. And also, in addition, the way in which police may or may not choose to record complaints of domestic violence. So they may not, simply may not record them as such, may visit, may not visit at all, may not answer calls, and so on. So I think, you know, threefold, really, not recorded, um, because women don't complain, because they're fearful of the, um, a perpetrator, And uh, that police don't record them, even when they perhaps have evidence that they may have occurred if they'd applied their mind objectively. There is actually a much more fundamental problem in relation to rape. I'm not in any sense trying to undermine the significance for domestic violence, uh, but for rape, which, of course, can occur in a domestic violence setting and uh, uh is commonly uh, from a perpetrator that's known to the victim, there has been a huge fall in prosecution rates. So from 2016 to 2020, there was a 50% drop in prosecution rates. Now, we have some idea about why that is. Um, first of all, perversely, Uh, The Crown Prosecution Service introduced targets. When I say perversely, one might think that that would improve prosecution rates, but it had the effect that charging decisions were more frequently negative, because if a charge wasn't made, if a perpetrator wasn't charged, there would be no prosecution, and then there would be no failure to meet the targets. Um, Secondly, there is some concern that the test for deciding whether to prosecute has been raised. I don't think I need to go into that. There's been litigation on that and that may continue, but a concern about that. So that is a real problem. And of course, as I say, um, domestic violence often manifests itself in sexual abuse, including rape. So a number of reasons why they're not reported and recorded, recognised as such. And a number of reasons thereafter why there might not be charges and then may not be prosecutions. And of course, the conviction rates, we know too, they fall even further. Um, so I think in terms of why do we know that there are huge numbers of victims, but actually we end up with a smaller number recorded, an even smaller number prosecuted and an even smaller number convicted. Those are, those are sorts of things I think we can, we can suppose about
0: thank you, and i'm glad you brought up the um, the huge um, decrease in um, rape prosecutions and the correlation between charging and prosecution because that may also explain the decline in um, charging for um, for domestic violence i'm going to bring in Carrie here now I mean Carrie, can you give us an idea of the picture in the u s Have you seen a similar Um, spike during the pandemic in terms of reporting to helplines? Are there issues with data collection, um, issues of under-reporting, etc.? And and is the data collected in different ways in different states, or is it a federal issue?
2: So, Thanks so much for having me. This is a great conversation and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, So many similarities, as well as some distinctions with the scenario in the UK, um, in the United States, one in three women and one in four men, uh, have experienced intimate partner violence over their life, lifetime. Um, and that, those are statistics that are developed from the CDC, that the Centers for Disease Control, which is a, our national, uh, public health agency, um, that has developed them through this NISVIS study that, that's an acronym standing for a national intimate partner and in sexual violence, um, study, and um, this NISPIS study is done every 10 years. And these statistics have remained relatively constant over the past two, de- uh, um, two decades since this, this uh, survey has been conducted. Um, now, uh, as you indicate, first of all, those statistics can change depending on the source of the statistics um, that, that, that is being used. So when one relies upon crime databases um, one is going to get prevalence rates that are far lower um, very frequently than public health surveys. Um, and so uh, and so those data sources will will change. Um, and we see that when we look at crime statistics in the United States at the federal level, um, domestic violence rates have decreased over the past several decades. And. Um, but uh, but but when we look at the prevalence rates as reflected in public health data, uh, they have not. Um, and so that's very important as we think about kind of the ways in which uh, the sources of our data reflect the reality that, that um, we believe is the case. Um, now, during the uh, pandemic, um, there have been several studies that have been conducted in the United States, <clears throat> and the most recent one of which is from my colleague, uh, Dr. Alex Picaro at University of Miami, he's a in our sociology department, and he and his colleagues recently found that domestic violence incidents increased 8.1 percent after jurisdictions imposed lockdowns in light of the pandemic. Um, now, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting data point because it does show uh, an increase, though not a huge increase in domestic violence incidents. Um, I'll just mention one other study, which I found very interesting. Uh, another study looking at uh, cases from the Chicago area specifically, these are looking at Chicago police department records, um, showed that uh, during, they divided it into two different um, uh, Questions: the the number of domestic violence cases during the pandemic period and the number of domestic violence cases during shelter-in-place period, right? Which obviously overlap, but um, but uh, can be separable. And during the pandemic period, cases with arrests were twenty percent less likely to have occurred. Cases cases at residential locations were twenty-two percent more likely to have occurred. Um, in the shelter-in-place period, though, the numbers. Uh, are are quite stark. Cases at residential locations were 64 percent more likely to have occurred, and cases cases with child victims were 67 percent less likely to have occurred. Um, and so, what does that tell us? Well, the first thing it tells us is that uh, children are children victims are identified largely through schools and other public spaces, and when they are sheltering in place, they are not able to be identified by their, uh, you know, by their teachers and school administrators. Um, and second of all, sheltering in place, as we know, meant that um, we were all uh, stuck at home and um, and in situations, uh, and, and if there's a situation where domestic violence is already uh, a problem, it was only escalated and exacerbated uh, during that shelter in place period. So there's much more I could say, but I'll leave it at that
0: thank you and what's really interesting about these sort of two you know overall pictures is that first of all we have a really serious problem in both the UK and the US and there have been similar i think trajectories in terms of spikes during um the pandemic but the point you may carry about the collection of public health data to to shine a different light onto the the true numbers is interesting because i don't think that is a statistic that we're um collecting um, in the UK at present. And that um, could be a, you know, an interesting gap which could be filled. I'm going to move on to gaps um, now, to looking at the gaps in law and policy um, and practice. And again, I'll start with the UK. Um, the UK signed, but it hasn't ratified the Council of Europe Convention on Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence, commonly called the Istanbul Convention. But the Domestic Abuse Act was signed into law very recently, on the 29th of April of this year, and amongst other provisions creates a statutory definition of domestic abuse, it creates a new offence of non-fatal strangulation, and it extends and clarifies the law in other areas. Karen, can I ask you why, after eight years on, after signing, um, has the UK still not ratified the Istanbul Convention, and is it an important instrument for the UK now to ratify, or does, in fact, the UK broadly comply domestically with its requirements?
1: Uh, It complies in many respects, but there are key aspects of the Convention um, that are not uh, present in domestic law and practice, importantly, practice too. Um, So, for example, there's a requirement under the Istanbul Convention to have a comprehensive framework of policies, measures, and so on, assistance, protective steps, and the like, which we don't see in domestic law, including in the Domestic Abuse Bill. And that's one of the big uh, complaints from NGOs, organisations on the ground, who say that the, the services are very fragmented. You know, They fit in in a space which may not be coordinated in any sense. Funding for them may depend on one funder. Funding for another organisation may depend on... Funding from a different place and how they liaise um, and work together, therefore, can be very complex and uh, uh, not as well as it could be if there was some comprehensive framework. Most, perhaps most significantly in terms of law, is the impact on migrant women. And I know you know much about this, Sam, probably a great deal more than me, but as you know, there is a requirement under the Istanbul Convention to treat, in essence, migrant women in the same way. There's a non-discrimination guarantee. When I say in essence, I mean there is a very particular non-discrimination guarantee, and then there is separate provision, as you know, making clear that those who are resident must be afforded equality in service provision. Um, We don't have that, uh, and therefore it would be difficult without a reservation at least, and I'm not sure one would be permissible in respect of that. Uh, but we don't have that equality and treatment. So we're not compliant. And I think it's clear that that, that is one of the most significant reasons, notwithstanding the improvements made by the domestic abuse bill, uh, for not ratifying the convention. There are other matters. There is a due diligence obligation under the convention, which is perhaps much more like a negligence duty so a positive obligation to take proper steps to investigate, prosecute, and so on. Now, it hasn't been said that that's a reason why the convention hasn't been ratified, but, but we can see just from discussions we've had and we may go forward um, uh, on, we can see from those discussions that that may create some friction between case law both here and in the US. Um, similarly, I would say as important as the migrant women's issue, migrant status, is the position of in relation to resources. So there is a specific requirement under the convention to ensure that there are adequate financial resources, including for victims of sexual offences, and that there must be specialised support. So general provision by your local hospital or by your local social services department is not adequate. There must be specialist services, and they must be adequately resourced. So I think probably the government recognises there could be some tension there, and they're going backwards in relation to migrant status. And you know the appalling measures, again, you'll know much more about, that are likely to be introduced in relation to asylum claims. And so um, I think that might be, those might be the impediments.
0: Yes, I mean, on the issue of migrant um, women, I mean, this and this was going to remain a problem despite the new act. Um, just to sort of clarify that a bit more, there are a lot of people who are in the UK who are on visas. So they're legally in the UK, but their visas state that they have no recourse to public funds. And that makes them ineligible for most government benefits. And because a lot of refugees depend on Things such as government housing benefit for financial support, many of them can't actually accept survivors, victims um, with with the status of no recourse to public funds. And as you said, Karen, that's directly in conflict with the provisions of the Istanbul Convention, which require no discrimination. And I mean, the government has given a very small fund a 1.5 million fund of support for migrant victims. But this is only a temporary fix, and we are talking about um a, a problem for a very large number um of women um Karen, do you also want to say something about the new um act and you know whether this is you know going to fill in some of the um other gaps in our domestic law i mean what's been the response broadly to the to the act from those, you know, NGOs who are working closely with victims and survivors. There
1: has been a great deal of enthusiasm in some respects because lots of the improvements to the, the bill, uh, and it was a, as you, as you know, it was a long time, uh, there was significant delay between the introduction of the bill and its enactment, um, and during that period, Lots of activists on the ground and NGOs campaigned for certain provisions and were successful in relation to, for example, as you mentioned, non-fatal strangulation as a separate and discrete offence—a real, real problem because strangulation is a is a is a, a very prevalent means by which abuse is perpetrated in a domestic violence con- uh, context, and of course it often thereafter follows. Um, uh, in a fatal strangulation. Uh, so, very important um, provision in relation to revenge porn. Again, that was a very important issue for campaigners and a lot of um, uh, uh, campaigning around that issues. Provision in relation to children, identifying them separately, discreetly, as capable of being victims of domestic violence rather than sort of treated as an adjunct to their, their mother. So, real improvements, and in some respects, therefore, um you know it, it really um, sort of uh, um, welcomed enthusiastically, but there remained significant problems which we've already spoken about, I mean the problems that we've identified um in relation to the Istanbul Convention, and this is you know a, a serious and major concern for activists, migrant women. Uh, as we've just discussed and you've discussed, inequality in treatment for the reasons that you've discussed, Um, uh, inadequate specialist services, and they include services for ethnic minority women, not just migrant women, but uh, uh, UK citizens from uh, minority communities who may need to access particular services for reasons of language, for example, as well as uh, other reasons, location, for example, being located in a particular uh, geographical area. So specialist services, inadequate funding, and the real, real problem about extraordinarily vulnerable migrant women.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you've you've spoken about some of the practical barriers to um, accessing help. So, you know, for example, not speaking English or not having a mobile phone, you know, women who've got disabilities, um, um, and, and other issues because, you know the law can you know can look like it's doing the right thing but we can see that there are huge practical problems for women actually um accessing um help on the ground and some of it maybe um the answer may be funding but um, but not all of it um Carrie I'm going to bring you in um at this point I mean what do you think the legal gaps in protection for victims are in the are uh, in the US you know is there for example, a very wide difference between the states in terms of the practice law and policy i mean what you know what needs to be done
2: uh where to start is the question um, so you know as as you're indicating um we have obviously a complex federal legal system where we have uh you know, federal law, um, developed through federal legislation and, um, our national constitution. Uh, and then, of course, we have state law, uh, that exists through the state legislative and constitutional levels. And, um, and so we sometimes can have wide gaps between the, uh, legal protections for, uh, survivors of gender-based violence at the state versus the federal levels. Um, At the federal level, we have the Violence Against Women Act, which is uh, a hallmark piece of legislation that uh, Joe Biden originally wrote and championed in 1994 when he was a senator and um, has continued to uh, champion and and, um, be a part of from his time in the Senate and then his time in the White House as vice president um, and now as president. Um, And so that legislation is is coming up on 30 years. Um, And that legislation has evolved over the years, Uh, originally largely focused on what was called a coordinated community response, but was more about a coordinated criminal legal response Uh, and um, has evolved over the years to increasingly include Economic and social protections, um, including housing and employment um, uh, funding, but but all of all of the Violence Against Women Act really takes place. The majority takes place through funding streams, through um, through you know specific pots of money that are put towards uh, improving the criminal justice response, or uh, legal assistance for victims, or housing protections, or culturally specific communities. Um, And there's you know twenty some odd different. Uh, uh, issue areas that are addressed through this Violence Against Women funding, which totals around five hundred million dollars uh, a year, that is authorized. Um, and so, but and and the Violence Against Women Act of, when it was reauthorized in twenty thirteen, actually for the first time, contained a non discrimination provision um, that prohibited discrimination against an individual on behalf of their uh, gender, including gender. Um, identity and sexual orientation, which was uh, quite remarkable uh, to get this non discrimination protection within this piece of federal legislation. Um, increasingly, the Violence Against Women Act has come to address, uh, visas for immigrant survivors, um, protections for Native, Native American, Indigenous women, which have uh, been a long, long, uh, long, standing demand of um, indigenous women's groups. Um, they have come to increasingly uh, focus on youth and, uh, and LGBT individuals, housing protections. So the law evolves, as all uh, law hopefully does, um, to meet the specific uh, needs and, um, and increasingly kind of adapt to Um, the complexities of of, uh, violence against women and gender-based violence in our society. Um, At the same time that the Violence Against Women Act has provided a lot of these protections, um, we lack uh, many civil and human rights protections in our law um, that allow victims to sue perpetrators or sue state actors who fail to protect them. Um, And so I'll, I'll mention kind of two specific uh, examples in this respect. Um, the first is that when the Violence Against Women Act was originally passed in 1994, it actually contained a civil rights remedy uh, that was uh, a landmark piece of legislation at the time that allowed a victim to sue her abuser in uh, in in court in um, in a civil action. And uh, that um, that provision of the Violence Against Women Act was struck down by the Supreme Court. In a famous case from 2000 uh, called United States versus Morrison, um, where the Supreme Court found that in order in order for legislation to be passed that would allow, um, you know, in this case for a victim to sue her abuser, it would have to comply with our Commerce Clause, which means that it that interstate commerce needs to be implicated in order for a legal action to be brought. Um, the Supreme Court found that violence against women essentially did not constitute an interstate commerce problem, that it did not affect interstate commerce. Um, and the court really turned a blind eye towards so much evidence that was presented about the vast economic impact of violence against women on our entire country, of course, including things that are considered, quote unquote, interstate, um, You know, whether that is the interstate trade of firearms, whether that is People crossing state lines to access health care, um, to access other forms of protection, employment that crosses state lines. Right. Um, in the United States, crossing state lines uh, is is even easier than in Europe, uh, where um, where people cross state lines all the time. Um, and so uh, and so anyway, um, the, the, the Morrison case from 2000 was a, a really, really devastating loss. Uh, for the women's rights and civil rights community. Um, that case came in the middle of two other cases that I just want to mention that also have kind of struck several nails in the coffin for uh, holding uh, state and private actors accountable for violence against women um, through through the federal legal uh, regime. Um, a case that came before that was called the Chaney versus Winnebago County where in 1989, the Supreme Court essentially found that there is no constitutional duty to protect from private acts of violence. That was a case involving, a tragic case involving a little boy, Joshua, whose mother called child services repeatedly to warn them that she feared that him having any contact with his father would result in, um, in violence towards the child. Social Services Department ignored her calls. The father indeed beat his child terribly upon you know one visit. and um, she sues the Social Services Department saying, "I put you on notice of this exact problem that my son's life was in danger um, and you did nothing to protect him. And the Supreme Court finds that under our uh, constitutional due process protections that she has no uh, that the son and, and she have no duty to state protection. Um, from this private act of violence, absent very specific exceptions involving state custody or some quote unquote state created danger. Um, the other, so yeah, go, I'll pause there, yeah.
0: So I was actually going to pause there because there's this very interesting um, parallel between these you know, failure to protect cases in the, in the US and the and the UK, and so I wanted to actually yeah go back to um to Karen to talk about the the, the Michael case and 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 to look at the sort of failure to protect from from the from the UK angle because uh, you know it's it's interesting you know how the court sort of at the highest level in both jurisdictions has sort of reached in some respects similar results in some respects not but Karen you you were involved in the in the in the absolutely tragic case um, of Joanna Michael she called the police stating her ex partner had come to the house and was going to kill her. The call was downgraded by the call handler with the result that the police arrived too late and she was stabbed to death and You acted for um, two interveners um, in that case. Um, do you want to say something about how the the court reached the um, the decision on on negligence and effectively the majority um held that um, there was no negligence in the case, but they the court unanimously allow the uh, case to proceed to a trial on on the right to life under article 2 so Karen yeah Ward, I mean, as you yeah. say it
1: was an absolutely seriously tragic case um i mean she was doing everything she possibly could to protect herself and the call was downgraded and then there were a series of other errors which meant that she was uh, she was murdered by her ex-partner um and i intervened as you say um or I represented two interveners, and one of one of those was refuge, so domestic violence charity that provides refuge refuge for victims of domestic violence and the question was whether or not there was a duty arising in negligence, so not only were they negligent but was there a duty at all in negligence um and the majority of the court, Supreme Court, concluded that there wasn't, so there was no duty at all. Uh, by, you know, against which any failure could be measured. And the reason they concluded, in essence, that that was the case was because the police owe a duty to the public at large, but not to an individual person. So this is a uh, uh, derives from their status as police constables. It's an obligation to protect the public more generally and discharge obligations for uh, uh, keeping the peace and the like. there are, however, as um, was clear from the judgment and indeed was, is well known, there are duties arising in negligence that attach to the police. For example, if a police officer is racing to the scene of a crime and they knock over a passenger, uh, sorry, a pedestrian, uh, a duty has arisen in negligence and subject to the other conditions being met, uh, that individual you know, hit by the police car may bring proceedings in negligence, a duty arises. But they concluded not in the case um, of a victim killed by a third party, in particular um, Ms. Michael and victims in her position, because there was a duty at large only and not a duty to individuals to protect against violence by third parties. But they made it clear that in coming to that conclusion, they were influenced by things like resources, costs, impact on police's general ability to meet um, their obligations to prevent crime. So it was um, a decision that was based very heavily in public policy, um, as it was described. Um, So certainly there was the possibility of holding that a duty rose. The ordinary test, it seemed to me, was met. Was there sufficient proximity? Yes, she was an identifiable potential victim, Who had made contact with the police. Would it have been fair, just and reasonable to impose a duty? One would have thought yes, given the impact um, on women generally uh, 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 in relation to failures by the police to protect against domestic violence. Um, But no, so notwithstanding that in my view, those two feel like threshold requirements for establishing a duty, uh, were met certainly in my view the court concluded no so didn't have to get to the question was the duty breached because of a failure uh, uh, to act reasonably in short in short you know in shorthand um, because they concluded that there wasn't a duty at all they did however as you've said um send the case on for trial on the basis of art- on the basis that article 2 was engaged as you know article 2 contains uh, Article 2 provides for the right to life in the European Convention and now in the Human Rights Act. There's a different test, although very similar indeed. Um, The test for determining whether Article 2 is engaged uh, 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 concerns the question whether or not there's a real and immediate risk. Now, there is conceivably a difference in some cases between the duty and negligence a uh, duty to take reasonable care which may be care over a period rather than an immediate trigger point um so there may be a difference between those two tests in any event article two is more problematic in relation to remedies who knows how long it's going to stay on the statute book the common law uh, in which the, or through which the duty and negligence arises will always be with us um, it's constitutionally entrenched, if you like. Um, So it's problematic that no duty arises in negligence. I also think even if one could carve out the same remedy under Article 2, it sends a very clear message to us all about the significance of protecting protecting women against fatal violence by an ex-partner. And for example, a duty arising because you've been hit by a speeding car driven by a police officer um, so i think those uh, i think it's problematic for that reason i think it's something that the um court ought to have been more concerned about they did in fact uh, because of the intervention by refuge we were the only one well, refuge forgive me and liberty were the only ones to make these points but they did refer to all the international instruments addressing um, the protection against women, including the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, recommendations made under the, uh, Conventions Committee, and so on, and indeed the Istanbul Convention. Um, and we argued that there was, uh, a custom rule of customary international law now that provided non-discrimination in relation to women, in particular violence against women. And they did refer to all of that, but regrettably, uh, they
0: didn't, they didn't, uh, give much weight to it yes and i think as you said it sends i think um a, a sort of chilling message to people who are you know are survivors victims in this area and feel you know i think a huge amount of you know powerlessness helplessness um in you know when they're looking for a very specific form of response from law enforcement from from the police and they don't get it and 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 yet you know the law says that's okay. Um, Carrie, let's talk a bit about the Lenahan case because that you know in in some respects is the uh, sort of you know the, the the U.S. equivalent. I mean, this is a case where there were repeated calls by Jessica Lenahan to the police urging them to act when uh, her ex-partner against whom there was a domestic violence restraining order failed to return her two daughters who had been out with him. And then this was now in breach of the order. He hadn't come back. She knew where they were and she told the police um, and she kept calling the, the police. But despite this, they didn't seem bothered. They didn't respond. And in the end, the children were shot dead by the partner. Now, you acted for her all the way through that case, and, and there's been a film, a very moving film, made about um, her story. Um, can you say something about how, what happened in the Supreme Court? Was there a, do you think it's a public policy decision um, behind the, um, the refusal in the Supreme Court? And, and how did the Inter-American Commission arrive at a different result?
2: I do think it's a public policy decision, um, and I think it's a gendered public policy decision, where um, the Supreme Court clearly uh, laid down its, uh, reflected its its own kind of gender bias and its own uh, gender priorities. Um, so, as you, as you say, um, it was a tragic set of facts, and Jessica Lenehan sued the Castle Rock Police after this tragedy. Uh, claiming that they failed to enforce her restraining order under the terms that were guaranteed to her in the order. The order had the language of Colorado's mandatory arrest law, um, which states that the police shall arrest or seek a warrant for the arrest of the restrained individual if they have probable cause to believe the restraining order was violated. Um, and so the case goes up to uh, the Supreme Court eventually. And in 2005, the Supreme Court finds that the language of "shall" was not mandatory. That "shall" did not mean must. That it meant may. That the police must have discretion. Uh, there were Amicus briefs filed in the case, much like uh, Karen discussed uh, uh, Amicus briefs that um, uh, kind of sh- 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 rang rang uh, alarm bells about opening the floodgates uh, to you know multiple cases that could second guess the police. And so the Supreme Court finds that Jessica Linehan has no constitutional right to the enforcement of her restraining order under the uh, due process clause. Um, And so this case combined with the DeShaney case that I mentioned before uh, really put the nail in the coffin on any due process claims that are brought either on the notion that there is a duty to protect or that there is a notion as in her case, it was a kind of a convoluted um, argument that she had a property interest in the enforcement of her restraining order. And, um, and so her, her lawyer was doing anything that he could to, um, to try to create a carve out within the due process clause, um, given this uh, you know, horrible precedent that he was dealing with. But alas, he um, we, we lost that case Um, And I represented um, the I was an attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU Women's Rights Project at the time, and I was responsible for coordinating the amicus briefs or the friend of the court briefs uh, that went up to the Supreme Court to inform the court of all of these other stakeholders Stakes in the case, the the implications of the case for many other individuals and groups um, aside from Jessica Lenahan and the specific matter being presented to the court. And so we had 150 different Amici file nine different Amicus briefs. Um, The Amici ranged from national and state domestic violence coalitions uh, to the uh, American Association of Retired Persons, talking about the implications for elder abuse cases child abuse organizations, organizations um, concerned about civil rights and human rights. Uh, we had a human rights amicus brief that, that laid out, um, much like Karen was saying, all of the international human rights arguments um, in favor of, uh, of of finding for um, police responsibility and, and state responsibility in this case for, uh, for failing to enforce the restraining order. Um, we even had a law enforcement uh, officers brief where uh, several groups of law enforcement officers um, stated that the the you know, facts regarding policing in this case were antithetical to uh, everything they had been taught about what effective policing is in the context of domestic violence. Um, and so after we lost the case, after Jessica Lennihan lost the case, um, really this is a story about survivor-led advocacy. Jessica insisted that someone needed to say that what the Supreme Court decided was wrong, and uh, she asked us at the ACLU to put on our creative thinking caps and um, think outside the box. And uh, and so we approached her with this idea to go to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which is an international human rights body, part of the Organization of American States that can hear cases filed against any of the OAS member states. Um, And you have to, of course, exhaust domestic remedies. You have to go up to either the highest possible court that you can or prove that doing so would be futile. Um, and you have to file within a certain period of time, et cetera. And so we felt like, wow, we had a Supreme Court case that was directly on point that contravened all of the international standards that Karen just mentioned. Um, this, the whole notion that there was a real and immediate risk from an identified individual uh, that, um, you know, a, a, a against a, another identified set of individuals, um, and that the state failed to take any steps to act. Um, was a framework that we wanted to juxtapose um, with with our framework. Um, also, just one note on the negligence piece, um, we highlighted for the Inter-American Commission that a state negligence claim would have failed, and so her lawyer didn't even try it. It would have been futile. Um, because under Colorado law, which is the state where this uh, tragedy occurred, she would have really had to prove willful and wanton misconduct on the part of the officers in order to succeed on a negligence claim. And of course, that wasn't anything that anyone was alleging that the um, that the officers allegedly uh, would have really would have had to, to have intended, intentionally acted. Um, with knowledge that the girls uh, would die. And no one was alleging that, uh, uh, that, 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 that they were um, intending for the girls to die. Um, anyway, we brought the case up to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Um, and, uh, and in 2011, the commission issued a decision finding the, the United States in violation of its international human rights obligations uh, to protect the lives of the three uh, girls, the three Gonzalez girls, Um, as well as equal equal protection and equality violations, due process violations, um, and and a few other uh, human rights violations. So it was a landmark victory. I'm happy to talk more about kind of how we then went about implementing it.
0: So, well, let's, I think we're sort of running out of time, but let's perhaps wrap up with a question to you both about... You know where we go from here. I mean, in the UK, Karen, we've got you know, a new act. We've got um, um, uh, you know awareness of a very, very serious problem. But actually, what do we need? Do we need um, do we need more funding? Do we need better policing? Do we need um, stronger public awareness advocacy? Where, where do you think we need to go from here? I think we need all of those things.
1: Um, all of them will involve money, which is, you know, some which is uh, one of the most significant problems. Uh, it's not something that governments uh, are willing to invest in. There are also increasing concerns about, uh, increasing recognition, I should say, about how we bring up children and what we tell them about relationships and what are appropriate relationships. There are still entrenched ideas about. Women and how they should behave in domestic violence or sexual abuse violence contexts, and those uh, stereotypes and attitudes towards relationships still are, are still firmly embedded in our society. Um, so those things need to be shaped and changed. And having programs in schools is one way of helping with that. But we do need the law enforcement institutions to take this really seriously it's difficult to know how many times we can say that because we keep saying it and then when you see a 50% reduction um in the prosecutions of a prosecution of rape cases in a four-year period you think well, how how much are we achieving not very much one one other thing i think it would it's perhaps important not to forget just in terms of the state's role in investigating and addressing domestic violence, in particular domestic violence homicides. as uh, Sam, as you know, we have a an inquest system. So where there is a non-natural uh, death, there is an inquest and an inquiry, or the coroner sitting on it, investigating what's happened with the relevant parties represented. And the relevant parties in a domestic homicide will often include the police, might include the local authority, might include health services, including perhaps mental health services, all of whom will be represented by lawyers, often by QCs. And then there will be the family for whom legal aid is not available, save where the legal aid board or the legal aid agency decides to exercise a discretion to provide funding. And that's a it's provided in a small number of cases and then generally where it's been challenged by lawyers failure. But is, is challenged by lawyers. And so there's not even any proper inquiry often at that stage, because without a lawyer at the early stage, the scope of the inquiry, how large the inquiry is going to be, what issues a coroner is going to investigate, um, those decisions are made without any legal voice for the family, often in the face of a large number of lawyers for the state agencies and so that too is a big problem because we're not even necessarily getting an investigation outside the criminal justice system or outside uh, a private civil suit uh, even where the state has some very you know a very significant function in uh, inquiring into a domestic homicide domestic violence homicide and making recommendations in consequence Um, the ability for the family to have a voice in that and shape the investigation, the inquiry, the inquest, make suggestions for recommendations and so on, is often lost because of the inability to get funding for a lawyer. So that too is another problem. I think wherever we look in the justice system, there are impediments to getting proper investigations, convictions uh, uh, and uh, recommendations or Uh, mandated obligations towards public sector organisations.
0: Harry, how does it look from your perspective? And obviously in the US, you've got a new president and uh, somebody that you actually worked obviously very closely with when you were at the White House. Um, Do you think you're going to see in the US a... A, a sea change in the way that domestic violence is treated but you know, in terms of law, practice, policy? Um, what, and what do you think needs to be done in terms of the top priorities?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, gender-based violence, violence against women and girls is, is uh, a top priority for Joe Biden. It's part of his legacy. And so I do think that um, he is elevating it to a very high level, in the White House. Also gender equality more broadly, uh, there is a new gender policy council in the White House that is responsible for developing a national strategy on gender equality and equity that is due on the president's desk 200 days from the start of the administration, so we just crossed the 100-day mark, and uh, so they, they're, they're you know, working their tails off to, to get that strategy developed. Another uh, exciting thing that is contained in, in an executive order from President Biden is the um, development of a national action plan on gender-based violence. and that is something we do not have. Uh, that is something that many other countries have and uh, and I believe the UK has uh, you can correct me yeah um, and uh, and and so that is something that is is about to get underway as well and I think has. Great potential. A national action plan, I think, is 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 an absolute must as a starting point for addressing all of the um, issues and beyond that that Karen just mentioned. Um, it is not the end point, but it is certainly the the point of um, coalescing, listening, um, and gathering perspectives. Uh, all of the problems that Karen identified are are huge problems in the United States as well. Um, that $500 million of VAWA money per year that I mentioned, in reality, it sounds like a lot of money, but really it's breadcrumbs in our federal budget. And so if we want to really um, a, do a holistic approach to thinking about addressing gender-based violence, a problem that is is arguably the most prevalent human rights violation in the world, um, we need to put our money where our mouth is. And, uh, and so, um, that means, um, looking at all of these places that have not traditionally been coded gender-based violence or domestic violence or sexual assault, quote unquote, um, and, and places where that is fundamentally implicated. So, um, one example is uh, we have a campaign called the one fair wage campaign in the United States. It's a campaign to eliminate what's called the tipped minimum wage. It's a, uh, a legacy of, uh, uh, post-slavery reconstruction era where, um, restaurant workers are paid $2 and 13 cents an hour, and then expected to supplement those wages with tips. Um, that's far below the, the national, national minimum wage. Uh, and, um, the one fair wage campaign has documented the disproportionate effect of this tip minimum, tip minimum wage, particularly in times of COVID, but even beforehand on women and women restaurant workers who basically have a quid pro quo going on. You either deal with the sexual harassment of both customers as well as uh, staff and managers and owners of restaurants, um, or you get the bad shifts and, um, you know, or, or no, or, or limited shifts, um, in any event, that's a gender violence issue, but we don't think of it as such. We, we, we tend to kind of code things in silos of that's a labor issue or that's a health issue or that's a housing issue. Um, when in fact, all of those silos have deep impl- implications for survivors of gender-based violence and their, their health and safety and wellness and, and economic viability. And what we know is that I do believe we have Placed far too many eggs in the criminal legal basket um, uh, over the years, particularly without creating accountability mechanisms for those very actors who are responsible, uh, who who we've put so much faith in and money in um, to uh, to supposedly solve this problem. So um, the place I'm at is that I I believe we need to um, use federal as well as state and local governments and the private sector to expand. Our notion of what pathways to safety are and how we need to support them. And that means improving the criminal legal system and creating more accountability within it. But it also means expanding to non-criminal pathways to safety uh, for survivors who choose not to engage with the criminal legal system, but who want the violence to stop um, and who want to seek Uh, you know, safety in, in, through other means. And that may be through community based violence interrupters and kind of a, which is a new model that's being explored and is complicated, but, uh, has, uh, has promise and perhaps in certain, uh, circumstances. Um, and it also means pouring a lot more money into, uh, food security and housing security—that um, is not uh, only kind of these short-term intervention models, but a longer-term holistic uh, intervention.
0: Great. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in a relatively short space of time, and there's you know a huge amount to reflect on. I mean, we've just looked at really at the, the sort of law, the policy. Um, some of the practice, some of the, the 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 legal reforms, and the you know the barriers to accessing justice. But as you've highlighted at the end, Carrie, underpinning this is this whole issue of root causes and economic insecurity and economic discrimination that you know women have been subjected to. I mean, we've seen in the last two years enormous amounts of gender inequality in terms of pay and how that links in to issues such as domestic violence i don't think really has you know has been fully explored and obviously needs to um, be done so but i can't thank you both enough um for such a brilliant and interesting and thought-provoking conversation and i look forward to us all being able to gather at some point in the in the future but um until then thank you both very much and goodbye